Please open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 14. And we'll be reading from verses 1 through 24. Luke 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Or not? But they remained silent. Then he took him and healed him and sent him away. And he said to them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. For they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done, and there is still room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. Well, good morning. As you can see from the passage that we just read, we're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Luke. And as you can probably tell, we've made a lot of progress, right? We're more than halfway through now. And so we've, we've come a long way. We've seen Jesus. We've witnessed his teachings, his miracles, and, and so many things. But yet, as you can also tell, this is still a long book. And so we still have a lot of work to do. So John is still going to have something to do when he gets back, thankfully. So... 
But as I've thought about this passage that we have before us this morning in Luke chapter 14, I've been reminded of something that John Piper says in one of his books. And what he says is, humility follows God like a shadow. What that means is that the only place that humility can survive is in the presence of God. And so when God is forgotten, when he's neglected, when he's minimized, so is humility. And so if that's true, what does that say about pride? Better yet, what does that say about my heart when I'm tempted to give in to pride? What we're going to find as we go through this chapter this morning, that it has a lot to say about humility and about pride. And as we go through this chapter, what it's doing is it's driving us to consider a question and to ask ourselves, ultimately, where do I go for satisfaction? Where is that place? Where do I go for satisfaction? Because wherever I go for satisfaction will ultimately determine what flows out of my heart, either humility or pride. And so if you look at the passage that we have before us this morning and you look at the overall structure and how it's laid out, you find that This passage begins with three examples of pride that are all to be seen as warnings against pride. And so the first one is in verses 1 through 6, and then the second one is in verses 7 through 11, and then the third one is in verses 12 through verse 14. And in both the second and the third example of pride, they both end with a call to repent. And you can see that in verse 11 and in verse 14. And then from verse 15 all the way to the end of our passage to verse 24, you get this kind of long extended parable. What this parable is doing is it's showing us what happens when you take these first three warnings of pride and you ignore them. The parable is designed to function in such a way that we get to see ultimately where pride will lead us and where it will take us. And so that's where we are headed this morning. If we kind of zoom out real quick and we remember kind of where we're at in this whole book. If you remember in Luke chapter 9, there's this transition to where Jesus literally begins to turn and he's now going to Jerusalem. He's physically walking on the road to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he will suffer and die for the sins of his people. So that's where he's headed. And so at the end of chapter 13, Jesus is traveling. After this passage in verse 25 of chapter 14, Jesus is again traveling towards Jerusalem. And the passage we're going to look at this morning, it's like everything slows down. And it's like Luke zooms in on one particular occasion in the life of Jesus. And so look at verse number 1. It says, one Sabbath when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And so that's the setting for this whole passage. Everything that takes place in this passage takes place on the Sabbath at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. We don't know his name. He's just a ruler of the Pharisees. And so since it's the Sabbath, that tells us, well, this is the day that the Jews, they go to the synagogue, right? 
And so they've gone to the synagogue, they've worshipped God, they've heard the law taught and explained, and more than likely Jesus went to this synagogue service with them. More than likely he sat there with him. He heard the law read. He probably got up and taught the law. And so now this synagogue service has been completed, and he receives an invitation to come over to the ruler of this Pharisee's house and to have a meal with him. And so before we kind of get into the main part of this passage, we need to step back and talk a little bit about some of the Jewish customs that revolved around eating a meal. Because in this passage, we're going to find there's a lot going on when you would give an invitation and you would receive an invitation. And then when you got there, where would you sit? And if you sat there, why did you sit there? And if you sat there, it meant something. And so there's a lot going on here. It's important to realize that at this time, the Jewish culture was an honor-shame society. And so what that meant is your family's honor determined your social standing in the community. And so if your family was highly honored, you were at the top of society. If your family wasn't highly honored, well, you're way down here at the bottom. And so at the top, you had the Jewish religious leaders, right? You had the Pharisees, you had the scribes, you had the lawyers, you had this man in our passage this morning, the ruler of the Pharisees. All these people are receiving the most honor there at the top of the society. At the bottom, you have the poor, you have the crippled, you have lepers, you have tax collectors, you have all the people that we've seen Jesus loving and associating with and eating with. So it's important to understand that because your family's honor determined where you were at in society, that meant that it affected everything you did. It affected what part of town you could live in. It affected who you could do business with, who you could marry, and what kind of parties you could go to. And so you can naturally see what's going to happen because of that. Everything everyone is doing is they're doing all these things to be seen and to be praised by other people so that they can receive more and more honor and work their way up the social scale. Everything everyone is doing is very well calculated. So if you go back to our passage, and you have this ruler of the Pharisee, because he's at the top of the social scale, what that means is the only people he's going to invite over to his house are people that can either maintain his honor or increase it. Well, that kind of brings up a problem. The problem is, why in the world then does he invite Jesus over to this meal with him? I mean, Jesus is a lowly carpenter, right? His family isn't of great name or notability. He really doesn't even have a house at this point. So what in the world is going on? Well, we have to keep reading. If you look at the end of verse 1, it says, They, referring to Jesus, they were watching him carefully. To watch someone carefully here means that you're watching them maliciously. Why would you ever watch someone maliciously? Well, you want to harm them. And so picture, right, the animal planet, you know, and it's the African safari. And you've got a lion crouching down in the tall grass. And he's watching the zebra carefully. Why? Is he just bored? No. The zebra is his lunch. He wants to kill him and to eat him. That's essentially what is going on here. 
the Pharisees are watching Jesus with malicious intent. They want to harm him. Well, again, we kind of have to keep reading to figure out what's going on. In verse 2, it says, And behold, there was a man before him, before Jesus, who had dropsy. So the plot begins to thicken. Dropsy was a disease where one of your major organs, your heart, your kidney, your liver, it's not working properly. And so what's happening is your body is retaining fluid and it's swelling. Well, the only way you could really tell, like they didn't have an MRI, you couldn't go get a CT scan, it really had to be a severe case to where your chest cavity would swell up, your face would swell up, your arms and your leg, everything is just swollen. And when you would see a person like this, you would walk and kind of take a step back and, whoa, there's something not right with this person. And so more than likely, that's the case with this man. And so now you've really got a problem. I mean, you might be able to make a case for Jesus to be at this dinner. I mean, he is the Son of God. He has been teaching with authority. He has been healing people. And so there might be a place to make a case for Jesus to be here. You can never make that case with the man that has dropsy. He's definitely at the bottom of society. Him being here is not going to increase or maintain the honor of the host. It's actually going to bring shame and dishonor upon him. So what in the world is going on? We'll look at verse 3. It says, And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees. That's interesting. They haven't said anything. But yet Jesus, being the Son of God, like he knows already what's going on. He knows what's in their heart. And so he says to them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? So there you go. You get your answer. This whole thing, it's a trap. It's a setup. In the Pharisees' mind, like they got this perfect plan, right? We'll get Jesus here. We'll get this man with the dropsy here. It's the Sabbath. Jesus will see this guy. He'll have compassion on him. He can't help himself. He'll heal him. And boom, we got him. He's broke the law. He's healed a man on the Sabbath. It's over. We've got him condemned. And the problem is, they forgot he was God, right? Like he, he wasn't really fooled. And so if you go back to this question, Jesus asked them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Like it's important to understand that out of all of the laws in the Old Testament, there wasn't a law that said you could not heal anyone on the Sabbath. Like, you're not going to find anywhere that it says, thou shalt not heal on the Sabbath. It doesn't say that. What it says is you couldn't work on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees' question was, well, what's that? What is working on the Sabbath look like? And so they interpreted that to mean that if someone is literally about to die... Well, you could heal them on the Sabbath. That would not be considered work. That'd be fine. If, however, they're not literally about to drop over dead, well, you can't heal that person because that would be considered work. And so this man with the dropsy, yes, he's suffering. He's in a lot of pain. His life is miserable, but he's more than likely not going to drop over dead at the meal. And so in their mind, according to their Tradition, not what God said, but their 
tradition, if you healed this man on the Sabbath, it would be a violation of the law, according to them. And so, what do they say? In verse 4, it says, they remained silent. I mean, they set this thing up, why don't they say something? Well, they remain silent, because think about it. If they say, no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, well, they know they've got a problem, right? They've had this confrontation with Jesus before, and they know that's not exactly what the law said. That was their interpretation of the law, and they knew, right, they've been down this road, Jesus is going to call them out on that. But then if they say, also, no, it's not lawful to heal on the Sabbath, everyone else that's not a Pharisee is going to accuse them of being harsh and unmerciful. I mean, what kind of religion are you guys peddling that you won't even heal this man on the Sabbath? You have no compassion. But then if they say, yes, it is lawful to heal on the Sabbath, well, then all their other friends... All the other Pharisees are going to think, well, you guys have gone soft. You're not real Pharisees. I mean, what, are you, what, what are you doing? And so then in the back of their mind, right, they're operating in this honor-shame society. And they love the position that they're at. And Jesus has basically put them in a situation to where they know no matter whichever way they go and whichever way they answer, they're probably going to lose some honor somewhere, and they can't stand to have that. And so maybe we just won't say anything. And he'll forget he asked us the question. <laughs> and so then it says, Jesus takes the man, he heals him, and he sends him away. And then in verse 5, he asks them, Which of you, having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath will not immediately pull him out. What Jesus is basically saying to them is you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Because if this was your son, like you would immediately heal him. If this guy with the dropsy was your son, you would heal him. Or worse, if he wasn't even your son, if he was your ox... If he was your animal, you would immediately heal him. You would lay aside your convictions. You would lay aside what everyone thought of you. It all wouldn't matter anymore, and you would immediately heal this man. And so what Jesus is telling them, the only reason you won't heal this man is because it doesn't affect you personally. Right? It's no skin off your teeth. It's not in your realm of your world, and so... Big deal. And they respond in verse 6. It says, And they could not reply to these things. So it's utter silence, right? They set this whole thing up to condemn Jesus, to trap Him, and the tables are reversed. And when you really step away and you, and you look at this first example of pride, what you find is it really, to Jesus, it doesn't have anything to do with the Sabbath or with the law or any of that stuff. What Jesus is driving at and what he's concerned with is a pride where I make myself the center of the universe. And the only thing I care about 
is myself and what affects me in my little world. And I'm not going to reach outside of my world and do anything for anyone else unless it benefits me. And what's even worse is it's a pride to where I so love myself that I will use you and I will manipulate you and I will use you as a pawn and a tool to get whatever I want, to serve my ends and my purposes. That's the heart that Jesus is driving at. He's exposing that pride. He wants them to see where they're at. Now look at verse 7, and we find this second example of pride. And so it says, He told them a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And so verse 6 ends with utter silence, and so Jesus breaks the silence with, well, I guess I'm going to start teaching you guys something if you're not going to say anything. And this parable is in response. It says, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And so it's kind of ironic, right? This whole thing starts and they're watching Jesus. And then he turns and he tells them, well, hey guys, you know what? I've been watching you as well. I've been watching you walk into this room and you're consumed with one thing. You're consumed with making sure that you get the place of honor. And so that parable is in response to what Jesus sees as they come into this room. Well, what is that? What's the place of honor? Well, in this honor-shame society, whoever the host was, and so in this situation, the ruler of the Pharisees, wherever he sat, like that was the most honorable place. And then the seats on either side of him, those were the places of honor. And so the closer you could get to the host, the more honorable a seat you could get. The further away you were, the least honorable of a seat it would be. And so imagine, right? Everyone's coming in here and they're consumed with getting those seats of honor. And if they can't get the one right next to him, they're going to be sure they're going to get as close as possible as they can. And I, you know, I don't know what it was like. I mean, the games they were playing, but they're all consumed with trying to get that seat. And so Jesus says this to them. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor. So he says, don't do what I just saw every one of you do. Well, why? He says, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Often what would happen, like in every community, there was a person or a few people that you knew like they were it. I mean, they were the deal. And so if they show up at the party, like it's no doubt they're getting the seat of honor. No question asked. Everyone knows it. Well, usually what would happen these people would always show up late on purpose. They would walk in the room with all the pomp and the pride. They would slowly walk across. Everyone would look at them, and they would take the honorable seat that everyone knew was theirs to sit in. And so the problem is, if you're sitting in their seat, well, the host is going to turn to you and say, get up. That's his seat. And so now you're going to have to get up in front of everyone. 
And you're going to have to slowly walk across the room, and everyone's going to be looking at you, and there's nowhere to sit. And so now you're going to have to sit in the lowest seat, the most least honorable place in the room. For that to happen to the Pharisees in this culture would be horrible. That is one of the worst imaginable things they could ever experience. It would be pretty close to death to them to experience that kind of shame. And so what Jesus is doing, He wants them to understand what the pride is in their heart is bringing them to. He's painting a picture with something they understand, something they can relate to. And he wants them to see that what you guys are doing and the way you're living and the pride that's oozing out of your heart that's causing you to be consumed with promoting yourself is leading you to experience one of the worst shames imaginable. And so if you skip down to verse 11, he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he's not talking about what they might experience at this party. He wants them to picture, right, this future day when they stand before the creator of the universe. And what they're thinking, like, they think they're in. They think they've got God's favor. They think everything is fine, and he's going to welcome them in to the banquet. But Jesus wants them to understand the pride that is exuding from your heart is actually leading you on a course where you're going to stand there and he's going to say, depart from me, I don't know you. The way you're living, the things that are in your heart, this is not of God. At the end of verse 11, he says, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He wants them to understand, if you want to be exalted into God's presence, if you want a place at his table, you don't get there by grabbing it and by seeking your own glory and pushing your way in and fighting. You get there by denying yourself, by serving and loving others. Ultimately, what this is, it's a call for them to repent, like to wake up, to realize you're setting yourself on a course that doesn't lead to God. You're running in the opposite direction of God. And so look at verse 12, and we have the third and final example of pride. It says, He said to the man who had invited him. And so now he turns to this ruler of the Pharisee, and he specifically addresses him. And he says, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich Neighbors. So again, he tells them, don't do what you just did. Why? He says, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. And so the way everything worked is, so this ruler of the Pharisee, he's invited all these people over to his house that can maintain or that can increase his honor. And so what they're going to do now is they're going to invite him over to their house. And him going there is an honor for him. And so it's just this big revolving thing in the whole society. You give an invitation, you receive an invitation to promote your honor. 
And everyone is consumed with their own honor. They give an invitation not because they care about that other person, ultimately because they know they'll receive one in return and their honor will be increased. It's just this big game everyone's playing. So Jesus says to him, don't do that. Why? Because what he says is all you get is an earthly repayment. That's all you get. And then look at verse 13. He says, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. So what Jesus says is, you know what you should have done? You should have invited this man with the dropsy, but not as a trap, as a setup. You should have invited him just because you love him. You should have invited him just simply to bless him. If you invite the people that Jesus says to, the poor, the crippled, the lame, there's no benefit to you whatsoever, right? They can't invite you back. Most of them don't even have a house. They can't return any honor to you because they don't have any honor to give to you. So there's, there's nothing. And so what's Jesus' point? If you look at the end of verse 14, he says, For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. What does he mean? He's wanting them to understand something. Think about the resurrection. If you believe in Jesus, if you're trusting in him for your salvation, what do you get at the resurrection? You get God. You come into the very presence of God. You get to see and experience and know all of His glory and all of His wonder face to face. That's what you get at the resurrection. So what's Jesus' point? Essentially what He's saying to them is you guys are far too easily satisfied. And what do I mean by that? Well, I don't know if this is going to be a good analogy, but we're going to try it anyway. I have a five-year-old daughter with little pigtails. Her name is Nora. And so she just had a birthday at the end of July. And so a couple months ago, I come home, and she is super excited. She is just bubbling. Her eyes are massive. And she says to me, Daddy, in 87 days, I'm going to be five years old. So I'm like, really? And she was like, how? She had come up, done all this work. She'd count down the days, and she had nailed it. And so the days go by, and I would come home, and she'd, Daddy, in 73 days, I'm going to be five. In 57 days. And, and just on and on and on. And the excitement and the anticipation, and it gets closer, and she's about to explode and drive her mom crazy all at the same time. Now, imagine that... Her birthday arrives. It's her birthday. So she's outside doing what little kids do. She's playing in the dirt. And inside, we've got cake. We've got ice cream. We've got presents. We've got grandparents that will never tell you no and give you anything you want whenever you want it. It's a little five-year-old's dream. And so now imagine that I go out there to her playing in the dirt. And I say, baby, 
It's your birthday. You are five today. It has finally arrived. Today is the day. This is your birthday, baby. Now imagine she just looks up at me with this serious look on her face. She's like, Dad, you know, I think I really just want to sit out here and play in the dirt. You know, Dad, I really I don't even want to be five. The more I think about it, I just, I'm going to stay four this year. I think I'm just going to skip my birthday. No, there's not a planet where my five-year-old would ever say that. And so here's the reality, right? This is essentially what the Pharisees are doing here. They're consumed with rolling around in the dirt, being content and satisfied with a little earthly honor when Jesus is telling them, you could know the joy and the wonder of coming into the presence of God. And so what this is, is He's calling them not only to repent, but to wake up. Like, open your eyes. Like, you're content and you're satisfied with filth. When you could know God. If we look at verse 15... It says, when one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. So you have this guy that's been sitting next to Jesus this whole time. And so as Jesus has given us these three warnings, this guy has been sitting there. As Jesus has rebuked them and called them to repent, he's sitting right there beside Jesus. And as all this has gone on, he turns to Jesus and he says, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. What he's doing is he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 is a passage that is looking ahead to this future time when the Messiah will return and defeat all of his enemies, even the enemy of death itself. And after all of his enemies are defeated all of the people of God will be ushered into this great banquet. And they will come into this banquet and God's blessings will be poured down upon them and they will rejoice and praise God for His faithfulness. And so what this guy does, basically, is he turns to Jesus and he says to Him, Man, isn't it awesome that everyone here at this banquet is going to be at the Messianic banquet in the future? Isn't that awesome, Jesus? All these people in this room, they're going to be at this great Messianic banquet. And you're like, like, where did this guy come from? I mean, has he been asleep? Is this a joke? Like, what in the world is going on? And so that causes Jesus to respond with this parable that begins in verse 16. And so he says, a man once gave a great banquet. And so picture like the party of the century. And so usually what you would do is when you would give a banquet like this, you would send out an invitation into all of the town. And so people would receive that invitation and they would respond back, basically what we would call an RSVP, to let the host know they were coming. And that was very important because the host needed to know how much food and wine he needed for this party. Like, you couldn't just go to Walmart at the last minute and get some more stuff. Like, it's a big deal. Do I need five goats to slaughter, or do I need 20? 
And so it was very important. So this initial invitation goes out, people respond, and then when everything is ready, right, everything's been slaughtered, everything's cooked, all the wine is on the table, then the host would send out a servant into the town and tell everyone it's ready. Come to this party and enjoy. And so in verse 16, when it says, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many, that would be this initial invitation that was sent out. And then in verse 17, at the time for the banquet, and so now everything's ready, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. And then when you get to verse 18, and it says, but they all alike began to make excuses. Like we should not interpret that and think, well, they forgot or they didn't know about it, or something came up at the last minute. Like, that is not at all what's going on here. They already agreed to come. They already said they were coming. And like, I know we do that. You did not ever do that in this culture. You didn't just at the last minute, whoops, I forgot. Like, that would be a great financial loss to the host. Because he slaughtered all these animals and you and all your friends don't show up, he can't just put that in the deep freeze. He's out that. And so you did not ever do this. So the only reason you would ever do this is because you purposely wanted to bring shame and dishonor on this host. And that's how we should interpret these excuses. And so when you get down to verse 21... It says, so the servant came and reported these things to his master. No one's coming. The master of the house became angry. He's angry because he understands they're bringing shame and dishonor upon him. And so he says to the servant, we'll go out into the streets, into the lanes of the city, bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And the servant says, well, I did that, and there's still room. Now what do you want me to do? So he says, well, go outside of the town. In verse 23, into the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And then you get to verse 24. If you were in this room and you were a Pharisee sitting at this table with Jesus, verse 24 is meant to utterly shock you and to just knock the breath out of you. Because you're sitting there and you're a Pharisee and you think and you're convinced that I'm in. I have God's favor. No matter what I do, no matter how I live, no matter what Jesus has said up to this point, I'm in. And Jesus turns to you and he says, For I tell you, none of these, those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. He's talking to them. He wants them to understand that despite what you think, despite you think that you have God's favor, you don't. The pride that oozes out of your heart, you're consumed with yourself and promoting yourself and using people, this is not of God. And Jesus wants them to see that. And do you see the ironic great reversal that goes on in this parable? This whole thing starts out and they're using and manipulating this guy with the dropsy to serve their own ends. And then it ends 
And he would be among the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame that actually is invited to this banquet. And they're on the outside looking in. And they don't get in. Jesus wants them to see that you have to humble yourself and turn. You can't fight your way into God's kingdom. Like He's not impressed. And so, you take this passage and you remember where we began. You remember that quote, humility follows God like a shadow. And you look at the Pharisees and like the last thing that you see in this passage in their hearts is humility. Like it's not anywhere there. There is pride just gushing out of every crevice of their heart. The reason is because God is nowhere in any part of their heart. Like we've seen it in the whole book of Luke. They have rejected Jesus. Like that's ultimately where their pride is coming from. The only heart that pride can exist and survive in is a heart that rejects Jesus. And you can either do that permanently, where you would never ever believe in Jesus and trust in Him, or you can do that temporarily, where as a Christian, in the moment, I can neglect Jesus. I can turn from Him. I can minimize Him. And in that moment, my heart will be exalted to pride. So here's kind of the problem and the thing I got to convince you of. I think a lot of us operate with this assumption that pride's not really that bad. I mean, we don't like it, right? But we, we kind of have this thing about it where it's like inevitable, right? We all struggle with it on some level, so we're kind of like a little bit okay with it. We don't like it, but it's like it's inevitable. Why does Jesus spend so much time in this passage with it? And it's not just here. I mean, everywhere in the Bible, why is pride talked about over and over? Well, if you think about what, if pride is to reject Jesus either permanently or temporarily, you kind of have to ask yourself, who's Jesus? Who is the one that I'm rejecting and minimizing? Well, in John chapter 1, it says he's the eternal God. He always was, he always is. He broke into this earth. He came here as God to suffer and die on the cross to bear the wrath of God because we couldn't. And then you keep going all throughout the Bible. He's self-existent. Like He just is. He's not dependent on anyone or anything for His existence. Like He just is. He's holy. He's just. He's righteous. He's wise. He's loving. He's gracious. He's long-suffering. We could go on and on and on. And we could talk for hours about all the things Jesus is. And we still really wouldn't get anywhere close to the end of who Jesus is. 
And so then if you go back to pride, what pride is, pride is essentially saying to Jesus. And if you summarize Jesus, what he is, is he's the greatest and most satisfying being in all the universe. That's who Jesus is. The greatest thing you could ever experience in your life is to know Jesus. There's nothing better in the universe. And then what pride is, pride is saying to Jesus, the greatest and the most satisfying being in the universe, it's looking at him and saying, you know what? I think I can find something better than you. I think there's something more satisfying than you. I think there's something better than you out there. That is essentially what pride is. Do you see how wretched it is? Essentially, pride is the essence of evil. That's what it is. It's not a little thing. And so how do you fight that? How do you fight pride? Well, if you're not a Christian, you believe in Jesus. The whole reason you're prideful is because you're rejecting Jesus. And so you can believe in Him right now. You can trust in Him. He suffered and died on the cross in your place as your substitute because you couldn't. Like you can't clean yourself up because God is holy. The very fact that He's holy is why you can't clean yourself up. And it's a dishonor that you would even try. And so you can turn to Him now. You can believe. You can trust in Him. And then if you are a Christian, like how do you fight pride? I think you have to understand, again, what it is. In the moment, as a Christian, I at times turn from Jesus and I turn to something else. And so the answer to fight it, I have to believe in Jesus. I have to cling to Him. Like, I don't need to go read a book about pride and do some self-help thing. I need to believe and trust and cling to Jesus over and over and over. I think there's two areas that you can fight pride as a Christian. There's the area where temptation is staring you in the face. And then there's the area where it's not staring you in the face. And so there's a proactive and there's a reactive way to fight pride. And so when pride is staring you in the face and you're being tempted to turn from Jesus to something else, how do you fight that? You pray and you trust and you pray and you trust. You pray for strength to cling to Jesus. You pray for strength to not believe the lie that there's something else out there better than Jesus. There's not. And then you trust, right? You trust in all the things in the Bible that tell us who Jesus is. You trust that He is the most satisfying being you could ever know. You trust that the thing you're being tempted to turn to, Jesus is already that for you. And then when you're not staring pride in the face. And so you get up, or maybe before you go to bed, you sit down 
and you read your Bible. And I think there's two things you do over and over every time you read your Bible. You pray that you would see and you would savor Jesus. And I don't know how that turned into alliteration, but there you go. It just happened. And so you pray that as you read your Bible, wherever you're at, that you would see Jesus. You would see the wonder and the beauty and the glory and the majesty of everything that Jesus is. And if you don't see it, keep praying over and over. It's there. And so after you see the beauty of Jesus, pray that you would savor the things you've just seen. That you would savor and you would be satisfied in the beauty, in the majesty, in the wonder, in everything that Jesus is. Pray that He would be the most satisfying thing in your heart. So much so that nothing else would appeal to you. And here's the deal, right? You're going to fight pride every day the rest of your life. You're going to fight pride in the moment, and you're going to fight pride when it's not staring you in the face. And as you fight that pride, as you read your Bible, as you see Jesus, as you savor Jesus, as you pray and as you trust over and over and over, what starts happening is the Spirit begins to change your heart slowly and surely. You begin to be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And it's not that the battle goes away but your delight for Jesus grows and grows and grows. And what happens, you love Jesus so much, you will fight to the death for Him. You delight in Him so much, you care so deeply for Him, that you will fight and you will fight to cling to Him, to trust Him, to love Him. And that's what it looks like to fight pride. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your son. I thank you that he is the greatest and the most wonderful thing that we could ever know. And I pray, Father, if there is someone in this room that does not know you, I pray that you would work a miracle in their heart. I pray you would open their eyes and you would turn their heart to Jesus. I pray, Father, that, that all of us would love Jesus. I pray that we would delight in him, that our affections would be stirred and consumed, and he would be so satisfying to us that nothing else would allure us. And all these things we pray in the name of your Son. Amen.